I want to extend a welcome to all of the visitors who are here. So if you're a visitor, we ask you to please stand, please. If you're a visitor, if you're a visitor. Cool. Thank you. Not going to ask you to say anything, but our church just wanted to give you all a warm welcome. If I, um, Pastor T always says, um, what do you say? <laughs> we don't take ourselves lightly, seriously, but we do... There we go. We don't take ourselves seriously, but we do take the gospel seriously. So we want you all to feel welcome, and uh, we thank you for coming. I gotta have a seat. Um, also, if somebody, if if you wanted to fill out a visitor's card, uh, and you didn't receive one, just come to the back, and they'll have one for you. Also, we have Bibles if you weren't able to bring one. So if you um, need a Bible, you can raise your hand, and uh, the young lady and the young man will bring a Bible to you. So, I have to be honest really quickly. When, uh, you know, we've been working our way through the London Baptist Confession, 1689, and as we've been um, walking through it, we were trying to decide and, and think through what topics each person would preach on. And... Um, I was looking down the list, and I'm like, oh, yeah, we got justification, we got adoption, we got sanctification. And I was like, I pity the brother that got to do oaths and vows. <laughs> I mean, oaths and vows, really? Yeah. And here I am, that pitiful brother preaching oaths and vows. But God convicted me last night. He said, I want to sanctify my people through and through. He doesn't want to leave anything unturned. As my brother uh, Jahil pr prayed, he said, give him the glory in all things, even in vows. So it's actually a privilege for me to be able to, to preach about vows to you all. And I hope that we will be instructed and we will know how to glorify him more in this area in our lives. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us without instruction on how to glorify you, how to worship you, how to bring you praise that's in accordance to your holiness, that's in accordance to your truth. And we thank you for that because that's what we want to do. Lord God, your spirit blows wherever it wills. And we ask that you would be pleased to blow your spirit on us today. Breathe life into your word. Breathe life into our souls so that we can honor you more and more. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So let's get an idea of what vows are before we start by picking up our London Confession and reading verse uh, number one. Reading number one on London Confession. Let's read it together. A lawful oath is an aspect of religious worship in which the swearer, having God's truth, justice, and righteousness in view, solemnly calls God to witness what he swears and to judge him according to the truth or falsity of his words. Let's read number two also. An oath is only lawful when it is taken in the name of God with all holy fear and reverence to swear vainly or rashly by that glorious and dread name, or to swear at all by any other thing, it's sinful and to be abhorred. 
God's word sanctions the taking when weighty and momentous matters are engaging attention. And when truth requires confirmation and an end to strife is desired. In such circumstances, it is permissible to take a lawful oath imposed by lawful authority. I think in these uh, first two sections of this uh, chapter 23 on, lo- on lawful oaths and vows, we keep seeing the word oath, but oaths and vows, I believe, are kind of interchangeable. Okay, and um, we see right here that it is, by definition, just a simple definition, a lawful oath is an aspect of religious worship in which we um, swear um, with God's truth and justice in view um, on something that we will or will not do. Uh, another um, good def- addition to this would probably be that they, uh, oaths and vows are, are usually voluntary. And um, I get that from Deuteronomy. So if you all would turn to Deuteronomy 23, and we're just establishing what an oath and a vow is uh, right at the beginning. So Deuteronomy 23, 21. Through 22. Deuteronomy 23, 21 through 23, it says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips. For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So vows are voluntary, okay? But the main passage that we are going to look at today, right, to get a deeper understanding of what vows are is going to be in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. And I believe that that begins on page 553 in the Bibles that have been provided. We're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, Ecclesiastes was written by a very wise man. Um, Some say that it was written by King Solomon because of uh, verse 1 says, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 says, the words of a preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, so some believe that that means that it is, uh, was written by King Solomon, also given the aspect that it is a, it's wisdom literature. But others say that because it doesn't say the name King Solomon, that it could have been just a Solomon-like figure. Okay. But whatever the case, we do know that the author of Ecclesiastes was very wise, very accomplished, and was inspired by the Holy Spirit to, to write these words to us. And one of the themes in the book of Ecclesiastes is vanity. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. It says, vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, when it says vanity, it's not talking about uh, prideful or, or um, building oneself up or thinking highly of oneself. When this is talking about vanity, it is talking about a kind of a, a mere breath, kind of an emptiness, kind of a, a, a striving, a chasing after the wind, going after something but not being able to grab it. So if you look at chapter 1, verse 14, this wise man said, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, and a striving after the wind. And that was just simply by observation for him. But what this um, wise man also did was he decided, okay, well, then I'm going to test it out for myself. So in chapter 2, we see a lot of the accomplishments that he did. He had lots of wives, concubines. He had uh, made a lot of um, extravagant buildings for himself. A lot of accomplishments. But yet, even after all of that, Verse, two, verse 11 of chapter 2 says, Then I considered all that my hands had done and toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. 
And one of the things that, one of the reasons why it seems like everything is vanity is because really God has placed eternity in everybody's heart. So if it was up to everybody, we would love, the good, we would love to have the good life forever. However, as chapter 3 shows us, chapter 3 verse 1, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And what he's saying is seasons come, seasons go. One day you're rich, next day you're poor. One day everybody like you, next day nobody like you. You work hard, store up a lot of treasures, hurricane come, wipe it all away. And if you don't lose that this life, in this life, it definitely will be gone when you die. And so he sees life and he sees these different seasons, stuff coming and going, and he sees death and he says, it's all vanity. What are we... What is he chasing? Chasing something that can't be grabbed if you're looking for something that's grabbed in this life. And so some people, when they look at Ecclesiastes, they think that he's being pessimistic about life. But no, he's being authentic and he's being real. We've all had these thoughts. But what, the, one of the reasons why we know he's not being pessimistic is because chapter 3, 14 Chapter 3, verse 14, look down. He says, I perceived whatever God does, whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. So what we see is the other thing that runs through Ecclesiastes is not only that everything in life has a mere, uh, is vanity, but also that God is the orchestrator of everything in life. He directs it. It's all from his hand. And therefore, as if we fear him, that's when we find, that's when we find hope. That's when we find assurance. When we fear the God who has directed everything in life. And so he goes on, which brings us to, uh, through chapter 4, kind of saying the same thing. And we land now at chapter 5. And this author is going to give us wisdom on how to fear God with our oaths and vows. Let me read, starting at verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1, going to verse 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God, to draw near to listen it's better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. We're going to have four things to um, think about today, four points. Point number one would be vows are made in response to God's word. Vows are made in response to God's word. And we'll see that in verse one. The next point, point number two would be vows are made in light of God's glory. Vows should be made in light of God's glory. And that'll be verses two through three. Point number three would be vows should be kept 
in fear of God's judgment. Vows should be kept in fear of God's judgment. Verses 4 through 6. And then verse 7 will be our point number 4. Vows should be kept with fear in light of God's mercy. Vows should be kept with fear in light of God's mercy. So point number one, vows are made in response to God's word. It starts out with guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now guard your steps is pretty much watch your behavior. Watch your conduct when you go to the house of God. And what the author has in mind when he says house of God at this point in time is he's thinking about the temple. Though God dwells in heaven, and though he is uncontainable, he still in his mercy allowed himself to be met by people on earth. This is not a, a, a dwelling place on earth for him, but it was a place where we were able to, people were allowed to meet him. And so um, at one point it was through a tabernacle. People met God at the tabernacle in which Moses had, uh, was instructed to build. And then in the king's time, there was the temple. King Solomon had built a temple. And at this temple, the glory of the Lord would come in a particular way and rest on the place. And there, people would come and worship, sing songs, offer sacrifices, hear his word, hear God's word mediated to them through the priest or prophet. And they also listened. And it's good that he says to guard your steps when you go to the house of God because the house of God was a holy place. The house of God was a place of of purity. And therefore, it was important to draw near to listen instead of coming to offer the sacrifice of fools. Because the sacrifice of a fool or the sacrifice given that was not prescribed by the holy God, might, you might end up dead. So if you all recall in Leviticus chapter 10, the priestly sons of Aaron um, offered an offering, offered a sacrifice that was unauthorized by God and they were consumed by fire. They were killed. Because you can't just approach God any way you like. He's too holy. He's too righteous. He's too pure for anybody to come him without thinking or improper. And we all know that it is just, certain occasions in which um, certain occasions require uh, different approaches. So I say this, if... Um, if when Savannah gets 25 and she says, I found a love of my life, and, she, and they drive up to the house and they hop out the car and he got his pants sagging down, I bet he won't touch the doorbell. <laughs> won't even get to the doorbell. The door may not pass the sidewalk. There's certain ways you got to approach things. You can't wear a bathing suit to work unless you are a lifeguard. <laughs> And you can't approach God irreverently. You can't do that. And God gave us instructions on how to approach him, which is his mercy. So that's why we should draw near, not just to do what we want, but to listen first. And when we listen, that's when we won't offer the sacrifice of fools, but we will offer the sacrifice of those who are being wise. And notice, the sacrifice of fools is not just um, some lighthearted definition of fool. Look at what he says. He says um, at the end of verse 1, he says, For they do not know that they are doing evil. To offer an unauthorized, an unprescribed 
offering to God is nothing to be played with. In God's eyes, it is evil, the very antithesis, the very opposite of who he is. No lighthearted matter. And so the author is, asked, is, 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 is encouraging us to approach God's house to listen first so that we then can offer good vows. Now, some people who are listening, you, you may not be a... Um, you may be new to Christianity or new to the scriptures. You hear this thing about a sacrifice and you wonder, what, what's that all about? Well, in the beginning, the one true God created the heavens and the earth. And he created everything good. And he created man and woman upright and righteous. But they decided that they wanted to be God and they rebelled against God. And when Adam rebelled against God, and sinned, death entered into the world. Sin entered into the world. And so now us, the whole world, have died. We've, we've been um, judged to die physically. We've died spiritually. We have, we're separated from, from God and his goodness. And then Ultimately, if we, if we stay separated from him, then we will be judged to die eternally in hell, eternal damnation. And so what God did, though, in his mercy is that to, to, provi- to provide a temporary way of escape from this, from this death, this impending doom, he instituted sacrifices. And so instead of people having to die, animals would die in people's place. That was God's mercy. And that's why there was sacrifices being offered so that God could meet them at the house and so that that God could be amongst his people. There needed to be a sacrifice paid to put away sin because as stated earlier, God is too holy. Now the question is, well, how come we don't have altars up here? How come we're not making sacrifices right now? Well, that's because God has sent a sacrifice once and for all to put away sin. And his name is Jesus. Jesus came to be the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. And he did that. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. And he rose again. And that resurrection shows that his sacrifice was accepted in God's sight. Therefore, we don't have to make any sacrifices as they did in the Old Testament anymore. Because we now take hold of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And we trust that now our sin has been cast away from God's sight. And now positionally and relationally, we are accepted by God. We are his children. And he now dwells with us. And we praise God for that sacrifice. And if you are an unbeliever, that sacrifice can be yours if you turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus. Turn from your sin. Turn from rejecting God and take hold of his holy son. If you do that, you will be saved. And for us who has done that, guess what we are now when we gather together? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5 says that we are now the house of God. It's worth us looking at it. It's, short, it's one verse, but it's still glorious. First Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. It says, 
as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. We are people that have come to him. And therefore, we are this spiritual house that is being built up. And therefore, when we gather together, God meets us in a peculiar and glorious and particular way. Do you feel that when you come to church? When you come to church, is there a deep sense of I'm meeting God right now. God is speaking through his word right now. Before you come to church, are you getting your heart ready saying, I'm going to meet God today. I'm going to hear what he has to say. That's what should, what should be going on right now. I know we love each other, and I love seeing all your faces. I love seeing the kids. But I love to meet God. And though he meets us every time when we're at home um, reading our words and when we're fellowshipping with one another, even on Thursday nights, when we gather together on Sunday morning, something special going on, and we need to believe that. And we need to approach our services ready to hear. This is why we order the service the way that we do. It starts out where we come in, make announcements. Then we come and we what? We get silent. Right? The act of humility. Close our mouths. And then what breaks the silence is God's word. We read God's word after we're silent. And then we, re- and then we respond to God's word in prayer and song. And then we offer uh, uh, our praise and our sacrifices of, of song and also of, of, of our money. And then we go back to listening. Listening to God's word. And we pray that God will bless us so that within our hearts it will cause us to respond and so that we would say, yes, Lord, yes, to your will and to your way. We come to listen to God so that we can offer right sacrifices. But always remember that our sacrifices are not right because of us, but because they are through Jesus Christ. I also want us to notice one other thing. Go back to Ecclesiastes 5.1. And this is a question that everybody has to wrestle with. Do people who have never heard the gospel go to heaven? Do people who have never heard the gospel, do not know who Jesus Christ is, do they go to heaven? Well, this verse says that they do not know that they are doing evil. The fact that they don't know does not get, does not excuse them from God's justice. He's too holy to let it go by. Friends and family, listen. There are people who do not know who Jesus is. There are whole countries that have stopped the gospel from being spread in that area. And it's not God's fault. It's 
the consequences of sin through generations and generations and generations. And that has stopped the ears and closed the eyes of people from knowing who God is. And therefore, they are condemned because they are offering sacrifices that are foolish. That should break our hearts and listen, that should cause us to go. Because how can they hear unless a preacher is sent? And if he sends us, we must go so that by God's grace they may perhaps call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's be serious about missions. Let's also be serious about evangelism in, in our area. A friend of mine knocked on about, a, about 100 or so doors over in the area that I worked, and we asked people, are you going to heaven? Probably all 100 said yes. Then we asked the question, why? And probably 95 of them said, because I'm a good person. And almost all of them said they were Christians. This is no light matter. If they really meant that, that means that I now know 99 people who are going to burn in hell forever. If that doesn't move me to go and knock on those doors again, there's something wrong with me. We can't sit by and watch people burn. We want to stand by and we want people to glorify Jesus with their lives because he deserves it. And it's also for the good of them. We want them to share in the inheritance of the riches of Christ. So let's be a church that from the corners of the block to the corners of the globe, we go and we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ so that they would no longer offer sacrifices of fools, but they will offer the sacrifice that's acceptable to God. It's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Point number two. Though vows are made in response to God's word, vows will also be made in light of God's glory. He says, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. Rash with your mouth and hasty with your heart is, is pretty much the same thing because out of your heart, the mouth speaks. And to speak rashly is to speak carelessly without thought. And we should not speak without thinking, especially when we are approaching God because God is in heaven and we are on earth. And so we should make, if we make vows to God, our vows should be made in light of his glory. Let's think about his glory. Our God is omniscient, so he knows what we say in our hearts and he knows what we say out of our mouths. Our God knows all things, and therefore, if you say it, best belief he's going to hold you to it because he heard it. And so it's foolish for us not to fulfill it. Also, our God is sovereign, right? And so he doesn't need your vow. He doesn't need your vow in order for you to do anything. And he doesn't need your vow as like a down payment in order to get him to do anything. God is going to do what he wants, when he wants, and it's going to be good. So therefore, you don't have to go, you don't have to make a vow to try and move God on your behalf. God is sovereign. He's in control. And also, another thing about God's glory is that he's eternal. So best believe if you make that vow to God, as long as he lives, 
that vow will stand. And so therefore, if you make a vow, it must be serious. It must be solemn. And that's why the, the text says, therefore, let your words be few. And notice it doesn't say none, but it says few. So there are times in which we should make vows. Now, some of you all minds may go right now after when I just said that. Y'all may go to Matthew chapter 5. So we'll just turn there real quick. Matthew 5, 33 through 37. We'll think about Jesus' words. Because we know that Jesus, in this Sermon on the Mount, gave some instruction about this law in regards to oaths and vows. He said, Matthew chapter 5. Verse 33, again, this is Jesus talking. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So what is Jesus saying? Well, we know in this Sermon on the Mount, right, what Jesus is doing in this, in this statement is that he's taking the Pharisees, right, and he's taking us to the heart of the law, right? So he's not abolishing the law that said, um, that said if you swear falsely, you shall perform it to the Lord, what you have sworn. He's not abolishing that law. But he's explaining it deeper. And what he's doing is he's, he's going after the culture of that day, which was at that time trying to always find loopholes to get around doing what God had told them to do. So for them, instead of them making vows to God, they would make vows to things in the temple. They would make vows to um, things on earth. They would do those things so that they could have a way out of it. So they can say, oh, I didn't vow to God. I vowed to these other things, and therefore, I don't have to stick to it. So what God is getting at with them, he's saying, listen, don't make a vow at all. Because you all, when you all make a vow, you all trying to break it immediately anyway. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. They still may be thinking, but he says, don't make a vow at all. I get that. But there are... Every nuance, every nuance is not um, given in every command, right? Every nuance is not given in every command. So, for example, if I'm at school and uh, if I'm at home and I tell somebody um, don't run in the house, they're not to run in the house because I don't want any foolish stuff going on. However, if there's a fire in the house, they better run outside with me? So the heart, of what I, well, the heart of what he's saying is there's no, I, I was in that example, no foolishness in the house. But there's this nuance, however, in circumstances, if there's fire in the house, get out as fast as you can. And so there are circumstances in which God has allowed vows. And we see that, uh, we, and we see the New Testament um, apostles didn't ab- abandon vows. Because in Acts 18, 18, don't turn there, uh, we see Paul had took an oath in order to do certain things. And so vows are not completely abolished. Y'all with me? Follow me? Cool. All right. Let's go back to Ecclesiastes, okay? And so we should let our words be few. We should not make a bunch of vows. They should be reserved for weighty occasions. And I can tell you, and one of the reasons why is because we are mere mortals and we can't do everything, okay? So um, what this is saying is, look at the next verse. Verse 3. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. Here again, he's reinforcing this thought of don't make many vows. So 
An example, you go to a cross conference and you say, I vow to go to India to give my life for Christ. And then you go to a purity conference, you say, I vow to be to not get married, but to be single for the rest of my life. And then you go listen to, to whatever, Francis Chan, and you say, I vow to sell all of my goods. And then you, you, you go somewhere else, you make another vow. And you just make a vow after vow after vow after vow after vow. He said, don't do that because, listen, eventually you're going to have to, you're going to break one of those. That's a whole lot of busyness that's going to leave you with nothing but a dream because you're not going to be able to fulfill it. That's a whole lot of foolish talk. It's many words, and it's foolish because you're not going to be able to fulfill it. So when you make a vow, think about it. Pray about it. See if it's in line with God's word. Make sure it's serious. Then fulfill it. This is what we've done with our, um, our church covenant, right? Our church covenant is a vow that we've made to one another. And if you look at our church covenant, it's pretty much it's, it's scriptures that's beside every single thing. So it's in line with God's word. It's not in there. I'm sorry. It's up here. Sorry. It's in line with God's word. Um, but it's all things that God has called us to do anyway. But we want to formalize, we want to institute, we want to make it a vow because we want to call ourselves to it before God. Because it's serious to be a member of the body of Christ. And so we, we vow to, I'm just going to read a couple of them, we vow to, to not neglect to gather together or to pray for ourselves and others. We've vowed to work and pray for the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. We vow to submit to the authority of scriptures as the final word on all matters and of life and doctrine. These are serious vows that we should seek to obey, that we should seek to fulfill. There's also wedding vows. Another solemn and serious occasion. It says, I take you to be my wedded husband or wife to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. The man's side says to love and cherish. The woman's side would say to love, cherish, and obey. And they both say to death do us part, according to God's holy ordinance, and therefore I pledge you myself. We love to make those vows because that is a wonderful and a serious and a solemn and a joyful occasion that we want to express to the world and to God. And we want God to hold us accountable to these vows. And notice these vows too are made in light of God's glory and in line with his word. And so vows are good and vows should be made in light of God's glory. So just in case you didn't catch the application, I'll just say it again. And it was, let your, work, let your vows be few. If you, do, or if you are going to make a vow, think first. Pray. Get counsel. Then fulfill them. And do that all in light of God's glory. Number three, vows should be kept in fear of God's judgment. When you vow a vow to God, do not, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, la- I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm laughing because half of y'all eyes are so droopy. <laughs> Y'all not, not on a brother. I get it. Look. <laughs> Try to tune in. <laughs> All right, here we go. <laughs> when you vow about it, God, 
do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. <laughs> pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Here we see that uh, it's a sin not to keep a vow. That's why uh, the beginning of verse 6 says, let not your mouth lead you in to sin. And we also see that God takes vows very seriously. Because the, uh, uh, the end of verse 6 says that um, God will be angry and may possibly destroy the work of, of your hands if vows are not kept. So that's why we should think about vows, and that's why we should pray through them, and that's why we should seek counsel, because vows have to be, they should be able to be paid. Because if they're not paid, then it's sinful. And again, we see in verse 5 that vows are voluntary. So another reason, one of the reasons it's foolish not to pay your vow is because you didn't have to make the promise in the first place. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. It's good either way, vow or no vow. Insofar as you are in obedience to Christ, following his ways, then you do not have to make a vow. And we all know how it feels, right? If somebody makes a promise to you, a vow to you, and, and they don't fulfill it. It's a horrible feeling. But for God, right, for that not to occur, it's an affront to who he is. It's an affront to his power. It's an affront to his justice and his goodness. To say that you made a mistake is to say that God can't provide for that mistake. Right? So it's doubting his supply of goodness for you. So that's why to God is an offense. It is a sin to not pay it. And therefore, we should seek to fulfill our vows in light of God's judgment. Now, this is the question um, that we may come across is, well, if I make a sinful vow, do I have to keep that also? Let's look at um, Judges 11. Turn, turn to Judges 11. This is, this is a good illustration of this. Judges chapter 11. And we see Je Jephthah, um, he's a judge that God used to deliver his people. And we see him about to make a tragic vow. I'm going to read verses 29 to 35. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah, Jephthah, made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return, when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from error to the neighborhood of Minith, 20 cities, and as far as abel Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Here we go. This is why the vow was tragic. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child, 
besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, at last, my daughter, you have brought me very low and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, my father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity. I and my companions. So he said, go then. He sent her away for two months and she departed. She and her companions and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man and it was, became a custom in Israel that the daughter of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. This is a tragic vow. One, it wasn't made in light of God's glory. He may have thought it was, but listen, he didn't have to make the vow because God could have gave him victory if he wanted to without the vow. And he didn't make it knowing his, he, he, as if he knew what would come out of that house. There was no need to make the vow. But then when, the vow, when, when he does make the vow and he sees see his daughter come out the house, was he supposed to offer her as a burnt offering? Now, some may say um, he didn't. <clears throat> some may say that in the end, he actually didn't offer her up as an offering or sacrifice her. Um, some think he did. Whatever the case, we know the vow was tragic, and so we're just going to say it has a tragic ending. So, was he supposed to offer her up? Well, if he had known the law, he would have known that God had made a way, a sacrifice, so that if he made a rash vow, that he could have made a sacrifice and God would forgive him from that sin of making a rash vow. Because the Lord does, did not want anybody to make a sacrifice of a child. So that was a sinful vow. And God made a provision for him. If only he had knew the law. If only his daughter had known the law. And so therefore, we do not have to compound our sin by fulfilling a sinful vow. It's actually repentance if we say, Lord, that was a stupid vow, a sinful vow, and therefore I am going to turn back and I'm going to trust your grace and mercy to forgive me for that vow. You with me? Now, that's not saying if you make a vow and after that you think it's a mistake. So if you make a vow and then you come back and realize that you actually don't want to give what you said you was going to give and say, oh, this is too much for me to handle and therefore take it back. No, God is not talking about that type of vow. If you make that, that vow, and if you make a vow that's not sinful, you are required, God requires us to fulfill that vow. And why? Because of what um, those reasons earlier. Because if we don't fulfill it, it is a front to his nature. It's an affront to who he is. So, in light of his judgment, if we make a vow, we should keep it. In the Huffington Post recently read an article and it was talking about uh, six things that this one person had learned from divorce. And um, this is what number four was. It says, 
Nothing feels as good as letting go. Even though letting go can often be hard, the sooner we realize that letting go is for us and not them, then the sooner we are able to live the life we dream about. Letting go can help you free up space you've held hostage in your heart of bitterness and anger and make room for love and happiness. That's what the world thinks about vows. This is how the world approaches God. The world fears not having their pleasures met over fearing God. And that's why we have to orient our minds not to the world, but to the scriptures. And if vows become hard, we have to trust in the mercy and the goodness of God. And we also have to fear his judgment. So if you are in a hard marriage, I exhort you, not as a relationship expert or a marriage expert, it's on the authority of God's word, that if there's no biblical reasons why you have grounds for divorce, stick in there. Hang in there. Fear God over anything. And as our church comes together, we are come together, we are saved by grace, but we are also still sinners. And there will be times in which we do not want to meet together. There will be times in which there will be uh, some divisive talk and maybe some backbiting and some other things. Do not break your vows. Fear God's judgment. Hang in there. And that goes for any vow that we make. And when I say don't break your vows, I'm not just saying stay in that situation. It's stay in that situation and fulfill the vows. So therefore, if you are in a marriage and it's hard, I'm not just saying, okay, well then just stay there and sleep in the separate rooms and, you're, and don't get divorced. No, fulfilling your vows says to love and to cherish, to seek to be understanding, to strive to be compassionate, to wash her with the word. That's what fulfilling the vow is. And to the woman is to, is to love, cherish, and obey. Fulfill the vow by doing those things. That's when the mercy and God of God will come upon us and come upon your relationship. And in our church covenant, I'm not saying just fulfill the vow by, by not leaving the church. I'm saying fulfill the vow by doing the things that we have vowed to do with one another. That's fulfilling the vow. Continue to pray for one another. Continue to give to the, uh, to the, to the uh, preaching word of the church. Forget continue to contribute cheerfully and generously and regularly to support the ministry. This is, what, this is what it means to keep vows in fear of God's judgment. And lastly, vows should be kept in light of God's mercy. From verse 7. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Again, vows should be kept with fear in light of God's mercy. Now, when we think of fear, the world would say that fearing anything is a problem. The world would say submitting to anything is, shows, is a sign of of weakness. But that's not the case with God. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Listen to all the promises that God has given to those who fear him. Psalms 33, 17 through 19, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Psalm 85, 9, Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Psalms 103, 17, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. Psalm 115, 11, you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Psalm 31, 19, how great is your goodness which you have stored up for those who what? Who fear you. Which you have wrought for those who take refuge in you before the sons of man. Fearing God is the fountain of God's mercy. You want that relationship to be restored? Fear God. Keep your vows. And watch the everlasting, steadfast love shower down on you. I believe he has done that with our church. By God's grace, I see us keeping our vows with one another. And it has been nothing but a delight to be here. And as we have kept our vows, he has blessed us richly. And he's also drawn people in. Because as we keep our vow of love to one another, the world sees it. They see it. They take note. And they're drawn. They're drawn to the church. We are reflecting the beauty of his holiness as we keep our vows with one another. And as you keep your vow of marriage and as you keep whatever vow you have made, if you made a vow in court, you are displaying to the world that you trust in the justice and the providence and the sovereignty of God. And people are taking note of that. And God is going to give you the grace and the mercy to sustain you in all of our circumstances. So let's keep our vows in light of God's mercy. And Chris, non-Chris, you are a non-believer. Aren't you tired of this world? Aren't you dissatisfied with the things of this life that vows to give you happiness? That makes you promises that it would bring you satisfaction? Aren't you tired of that? I am. I have a dissatisfaction with the world. But that's because I have an everlasting hope in the world to come. Because my Lord Jesus has purchased me and has promised to bring me through this dissatisfaction of life into the satisfaction of his glory. And he's promised it for everybody. All of us who have placed our faith in Christ that he will satisfy us with his goodness even when life seems vain. So if life seems like vanity to you, like chasing after the wind, relationship after relationship, job after job gets you nowhere, it's meant to do that. So what are you going to do about it? You're going to stay dissatisfied? 
My friend, there's no need to. Come and drink from the well of living water. It satisfies and it never runs out. Come and eat the bread of life, which is Jesus Christ. You will never go hungry again. My friend, you want to be satisfied? Come to Jesus as you hear him calling you. Because that's this satisfaction that you have with life, that chasing after the wind will be a race that will end you up into hell. Don't go there. Don't go there. He's willing and able to save and to give you everlasting life today. So if there's any vow that you want to make, make a vow to turn away from your sins and to trust in Christ. And in all of those promises that I just read for my fellow believers will be promises for you. And God keeps every single one of his promises. You could trust that. My fellow believers, let's be people who are intentional about keeping whatever vow that we make. So let's make our vows in response to God's word. Let's make our vows in light of God's glory. Let's fear God's judgment and keep our vows. Let's also rest in God's mercy as we seek to keep our vows. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who has kept your vow to us. You said that you would send a Savior into the world that would take away the sins of all those, those who will believe in you. And you did that. And you said that you would give everlasting life to all those who will believe in you. And you have done that. You said you would meet us as we meet together in, in your house. And you do that every single time. Lord God, you said that you would be with us wherever we go. And you have done that. So, Lord God, in light of the vows that you have made and you have kept, we want to reflect your glory by also being people who keep our vows. Give us the grace to do that, Lord Jesus. And, Lord God, we ask that you would help us to hold on to the vow that we made that we will follow you wherever you take us, trusting that you will bring us to glory. We thank you for your word. Make it dwell richly within our hearts to the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.